something in the parents of the kids. And um, I really want to encourage you guys um, to volunteer to help out with Quest Kids. This is one of the areas of ministry that is growing the most rapidly for us. And where a lot of exciting things are taking place that God is doing um, in the life of this church. So I really encourage you to volunteer. Uh, I'm going to volunteer and uh, I'm going to be with them in two weeks serving in there. So come and join me. And uh, hopefully I pick up a couple new dance moves like they had going on. No one wants that. Okay. All our volunteers just quit. Great. Awesome. Um, one other thing is uh, next Sunday, uh, we are doing what, we, what we're calling the community worship service. And uh, we're joining with two other churches here. Uh, St. Joseph's is a historically black church that was the hub of the civil rights movement uh, here in Chapel Hill in the 60s and for the Triangle as well. Uh, Dr. King came through and, um, he, and he was hosted there at that church. And uh, there's another church called Grace Community Church. That's a predominantly white church. And they have joined together uh, for about a year. They've been taking uh, about four times a year. They, they meet together to worship together as an intentional move of racial reconciliation and to have the church take the lead in culture on racial reconciliation. And we all know that especially over the past year, we have seen things come to the surface that have been present for a very, very long time. And the church has to be a prophetic voice into that conversation. The church has to be a prophetic voice in that conversation. They've invited us to be a part of that. We've met with them once and it was incredible. And we get to host a meeting here next Sunday. So at 10 45, um, come and be a part of that. It is a beautiful experience and it's going to be really great to have them here. So if you don't get here like on time for the 10, you probably are going to have to like hang out at Waffle House and then come to the 1145 because it might be pretty packed in here next week with that. So that's part of our role as the church. We're called to that. The Apostle Paul tells us that God has reconciled us through Jesus Christ. And then he also says that as Christians, we have a ministry of reconciliation. We have to be leading the way. And we have to show a compelling vision of what the kingdom of God looks like in its fullness. In the fullness of its beauty. And so that's why we're being a part of that. And we want you to be here for that next week. Over this summer, we've been walking through the life of David. One of my heroes from scripture. And uh, we've been hitting like the, the great highlights of David's life. Many of those stories that we're familiar with. And we see the way that God calls him out of obscurity. And against all odds anoints him to be the king over Israel. God's chosen and anointed king over the people of Israel. And then we see this moment where David steps up in courage. And stands up against the giant Goliath. And the way that God delivers him in that battle and the way that God brings victory in that battle. And then we see also the way God protects David as he is pursued and as everybody good? Okay. <laughs> um, as, as he is pursued, as he is chased, as his life is on the line and God protects him through all of that. And God puts David on the throne just like he promised he would do. And through every step of David's life, God is faithful to the promises that he made to him. But there are some moments in David's life 
where he is not faithful to God. And there are some very dark moments of failure in David's life. And we're going to look at one of those today. The story that we're going to look at is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And let me just say before we get into this message, this is a difficult message today. Okay, please pray for me. This is one of those messages where I'm way over my head. Okay, and that's a good place to be because we, we're completely dependent on the Holy Spirit navigating us through this. But pray for me and pray for us together as a church. And also, I just want to give you a heads up and, and, and a, a brief warning that some of the things that we deal with in this relationship between David and this character that we meet today named Bathsheba, we're going to be addressing some difficult topics. I just want to give you a heads up on that. And if you feel like you need to slip out, that is completely, completely fine. Okay. All right. Holy Spirit, help us today. This is your time. This is your word. It is completely yours. Speak it to us. And I pray that you would just open things up or shut things down. Completely direct us today, please. We're absolutely dependent on you today. So your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. A couple of things that leap out to us right from the start here as we get into this very difficult passage. The first is how this thing begins and the setting that it gives to us. Setting is always important in literature. Setting is always important in story. Setting is like another character, right, in the story. It has no dialogue, and yet it speaks so much to us. It has so much to say about what is happening in this context. And it says that it was springtime at the time when kings go off to war. And David sent his army out to war. Yet David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And we find David restless. And we find David bored. Unable to sleep. And he gets up and he's walking around on the roof. And that's how the story begins to unfold. We remember David at the beginning of this story as this courageous warrior, as this person who led his men and his friends into battle. Now we've got David comfortable in the palace and he's no longer leading into battle. He's sending into battle while he stays at home in the luxury of the palace. There's been a shift in David's Heart. There's been a shift in David's disposition here. 
David has moved from where at the beginning of the story, where, where he's characterized with this humility and this wonder and this awe that God would anoint him of all people to be the king of Israel. Now he's moved out of humility and wonder and awe, and we find him in a place of entitlement. He's moved into entitlement. As if the anointing of God is something that he has earned and is something that he deserves. And he's become comfortable in the palace. This is not where David should have been to begin with. This is not where he should have been. He's been lulled to sleep by the comfort of the palace. Let me ask you something today. Do you still live in the wonder and the awe and the humility and the gratefulness that comes from experiencing the grace of God in your life? Or have you come to a place in your life where you begin to believe that you deserve it? You deserve it. Now, we all understand that nobody deserves grace, right? But when we start to believe a little bit that maybe I have somehow deserved it, well, if no one deserves grace, but maybe I deserve it just a little bit, then do you see the way it changes your relationship to other people? I deserve it, but they don't deserve it. And some of us have been in the kingdom for so long that we've become comfortable in the palace. And that's not where we're supposed to be. Don't live in a place of entitlement when it comes to God's grace. Jesus, help us today. Wreck us even today with humility and wonder and awe over the grace that you have poured out on us. So then it moves on. And it says this. It says um, that David sends for Bathsheba. He asks about her. He sees her bathing on the roof and, and he sees her, her beauty and he is tempted by that and, and he, he asks about her. Who is this? And it says that the answer comes back. Well, this is Bathsheba. You know Bathsheba. This is Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah. She's the daughter of Eliam. Now here's the deal. We're not given the full story in here, but as we understand the broader context that the story is happening in, then we meet Uriah in other places and we meet Eliam in other places. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is one of David's mighty men. We've talked about them before and the deep loyalty and friendship, and the bond of friendship that these people have forged together. And Uriah is one of these people that consistently has laid his life on the line, has fought beside, but also has fought for David. Time and time again. This is one of David's most trusted friends. Not just a part of his army, not just a servant. This is a friend. One of David's mighty men. He's listed among what's called the 30, which is this tight-knit group of warriors very close to David. Now, Eliam... It's Bathsheba's father. And it tells us in another place that Eliam has fought for David as well. Because Eliam is a member of David's personal bodyguard. And then we find out in an even broader context that Bathsheba's grandfather has also served David. Eliam's father, Bathsheba's grandfather, has been one of David's closest advisors. And a person of wisdom that David has trusted time and time again. This is who Bathsheba is. And there's this connected web of relationship. And still, 
still after David finds out this, he sends for her and he has her brought to his palace. Now here's a piece that we need to understand. It says here that Bathsheba was bathing on the roof. Many of us are familiar with that great song from Jeff Buckley that he made famous, Hallelujah, and this beautiful song. And it's got this very poetic line in there. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. Right? It almost paints this kind of romantic type of picture, right? Almost this seductive kind of idea. And many people, when they work through this passage and when they speak about this passage, they start to talk about Bathsheba bathing on the roof as if this was some act of seduction designed to get David to fall for her. Well, why was she bathing on the roof then? Why was she bathing on the roof? Why did she do that? Was she inviting it? Come on. Come on. You do realize that the Bible wasn't written 50 years ago, right? You do realize that the Bible takes place in ancient Middle Eastern culture. This particular story of David happens 3,000 years ago. Newsflash, they hadn't quite cracked the technology of indoor plumbing in every home at this point. So what did they do? They They built cisterns. To collect the water. Jerusalem is famous for not having a river that runs through it. There's a lot of beautiful prophecy about this river of God. This river that flows through the city of God. And part of the beauty of that prophecy is there is no river in Jerusalem. So that prophecy is talking about the spirit of God giving life to this place that is dry desert. So what do they do? They build these cisterns to collect the rainwater. And many of them would have been built on the roof. Having this happen on the roof was a very, very common thing. Don't even start to put this on Bathsheba. This is not Bathsheba tempting David into sin. This is not. This is David's failure. And it's David's failure alone. Why, when we approach this story... Do we try to protect David's image? The entire institution was built to protect David. David doesn't need your protection. The entire institution, the entire culture is bent towards protecting people like David. Why don't we try to step up and protect Bathsheba who has no voice in this culture and who has no voice in this story. David doesn't need our protection. Scripture doesn't do that. Scripture is raw. Scripture is honest about David's failure and it doesn't try to paint it in any other way. So let's be honest about that and let's be raw about that as well. Let me just stop real quick. Holy Spirit, help us. Please direct and please help us. Gentlemen, stop using the fact that you're a man as an excuse. As if that somehow excuses the temptation. No temptation has seized you, Paul encourages us, except what is common to all of us. And God has made a way out. For us to stand up under it. That is a promise of hope. Is temptation real? Absolutely. Let's be raw. Let's be honest about that. It is absolutely real. 
But stop using the fact that you're a man as an excuse. Being a man is not an excuse. Being a man is a calling. Step into it and stop hiding. As the story goes on, we see that David sends for her. David has the messengers to send for her. Now, this is not David getting his buddy to go over to the table, right, and to speak to her and say, hey, you know, my friend is kind of like. <laughs> That's not what's happening, right? That's not what is happening. Once again, let, let's, let's see it. Remember, we need to look at what happens, when it happens, where it happens. And then that gives us some insight into why it happens and exactly what's going on behind here. And as we look a little bit deeper into this, we, we realize the structure. The king himself sends his messengers to go get her. Do you think she knew exactly what this was about? As you read through the rest of the story, we see that David was very strategic, very calculating about covering up his motive here. You don't think he did it at this point too? And so they go, the king's people go to her house and they bring her to David. Please understand this is not an affair. This is not an affair. This is not two people falling into temptation together. This is completely different. This is a patriarchal culture where the women have zero rights and zero voice. Not only is it a patriarchal culture, it's a monarchy. And David is the king. And not only is it a monarchy, it's God's kingdom. And David is God's anointed king. You infuse all of that together and patriotism and everything else that you can put together in this story. This is not an affair. Bathsheba is brought to David. And in this moment, what we see here is an abuse of power. An abuse of power. This is David's failure. And it's an abuse of power. Holy Spirit, help us. Here's what we need to understand, guys. Here's what we need to understand. Every person in this room. Any unwanted advance to any degree is just wrong. Any unwanted advance against someone to any degree is just flat wrong. That's all there is to it. And there are other forms of power besides just the physical. Emotional, spiritual, substances, Any advance unwanted is wrong, is wrong. Now, as Christians, we view sex as a sacred act designed for the covenant of marriage. That's how Christians view sex. 
but as an entire culture. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Any unwanted advance is just wrong. If this is a part of your story, and you have been hurt by this, then let me say that I am sorry. And you need to hear very plainly, this is not your fault. That is not your fault. And sometimes when we have been the victim of this, we carry guilt and we carry shame. That is not your guilt. And that is not your shame. Please understand that. Please hear that today. Please hear that. Is church really the place to be talking about this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you need to know that God hears your cries. You are not silent. He hears your cries. And he takes your pain and he bears it himself. Christianity is such a strange religion. Because we believe in a God who enters into the suffering of his people. And carries their pain for them. And that's true for every person here. If that's your story, please, please understand that and believe that. Thank you, Jesus. As the story moves on and as this takes place, word comes back to David from Bathsheba. She says, David, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. And the story takes another twist. David here in his calculation and in his strategy realizes what he has to do in order to cover this up. And so he calls his friend Uriah who is out at the battlefield. He calls him back from battle for a special meeting with the king. And when Uriah comes in, he's confused as to what is going on. Why would the king call him back from battle when the rest of the men are out there fighting? And David brings him in. And David says, I just want to show my appreciation. You've been so loyal to me for all this time. I want to show my appreciation. Thank you for the way that you fight. Thank you for the way that you've stood beside me. Thank you for everything that you do. Now, stand my appreciation and go home tonight. Rest at your own home. Lie in bed with your wife. Thank you for everything that you've done. Uriah is confused. Uriah is upset by this. And he says, wait a second, king, my men are out in battle. Their lives are on the line right now. Even God's Ark of the Covenant is there in a tent at the front lines of battle. And you want me to go and sleep in my bed with my wife? I won't do it. As surely as you live, O king, I would never do such a thing. And so Uriah spends the night lying next to David's servants 
at the entrance of David's palace. David is upset by this. David is furiated about this. Uriah is completely messing up the cover-up plan. And so he says, Uriah, stay here one more day. Before you go back, stay here one more day. Let me show my appreciation again. Come to a feast tonight in your honor. And David feeds him, and David uh, actually gets him completely drunk. Gives him so much alcohol that Uriah is drunk. And this is all part of his plan. And then David leans in. Okay, now, go on back home. You deserve it. Go on back home. Sleep tonight in your own bed. Go back home to your wife. And Uriah, even in that state of mind, says, I won't do it. And once again, he sleeps at the entrance to the palace with the other servants. And he refuses to cave. David realizes this is not going to work. And so the next day he sends Uriah back to the battlefield. He says, Uriah, thank you for coming to visit me. Go back and and blessings on you in the fight. Now I need you to take this message and deliver it to the commander of the army. Don't open it. This is top secret. This is military information. Do not open it. Deliver it directly to the commander. And Uriah does what he's asked to do. And with loyalty, he heads back to the front lines of the battle, carrying the message in his hand. And what he doesn't realize is that the message says in it to the commander of the army, put Uriah at the front line of the battle. Wherever the most dangerous part is, it says wherever the fighting is the fiercest, put Uriah there. And as soon as the battle gets intense, order your other men to draw back and leave Uriah exposed. The commander carries out what David has asked. And David's friend, David's loyal friend, friend who's fought for him, who stood beside him, who's honored him, falls in battle. And David has succeeded in covering up adultery by committing murder. This is heartbreaking. It says that Bathsheba mourns over the death of her husband and then David to once again appear to be the noble man takes Bathsheba as his wife. It's only the right thing to do. It's so sad what happened to your husband. I will take care of you now. And then as Bathsheba's pregnancy becomes public, nobody has a question. David succeeded in covering it up. Then one day it says, as chapter 12 begins, God sent Nathan the prophet. You got to watch out for prophets. Into the throne room of the king and here comes Nathan. In this beautiful throne room. David sitting on the throne. Probably nearby is, is, is the sword, right? Where he chops off Goliath's head. All of this. Honoring David and his greatness. And Nathan stands there and he begins to speak to David. And he says, David, I need your judgment on something. A terrible thing has happened in our kingdom. There's a very rich man who had so much livestock, he hardly knew what to do with it. 
everything you can think of. Cattle, all of it. Cattle, sheep, everything. He's a very rich man. He has a neighbor who is a very poor man. The only thing this neighbor had was one small lamb. And this man loved this lamb. He treated this lamb as if it was a part of his family. He fed the lamb from his own table. And even at night, this lamb slept in his arms. He cherished it so much. The entire family treated this lamb as if it were a part of their family. One day, the rich man has a visitor show up. And the rich man wants to do something nice to welcome him. So he decides to have a feast. But instead of preparing a meal from one of his many cattle that he could have chosen, the rich man goes and he steals that one lamb from his poor neighbor. And he kills it. And he prepares it. And he serves it to his guest. David was furious. This kind of thing will not stand in my kingdom, David says. Who is this man? Tell me who he is. Bring this man to me and he will be punished. He will pay for what he has done. And Nathan looks him dead in the eye and says, David, you are that man. The truth cuts through David. Suddenly, the entire cover-up, the whole shroud comes down. He is crushed by the truth. He is broken by the truth. And David falls into a deep, deep repentance over everything that he has done. In fact, Psalm 51, a beautiful psalm, is written in response to this. It's written in response to this. And David cries out to God. You should go and read that psalm and dig into that. And he cries out to God and begs. For forgiveness. And of course, God forgives. Here's what we need to understand today. Here's what we have to see very clearly. I don't know where you are in this story, but no matter what your story is, redemption is possible. Redemption is possible because we see as this story goes on through this tragic story that's even compounded with more tragedy because David and Bathsheba lose the child that they conceived. And as more tragedy compounds, as we see down the road, God redeems even this story. God redeems even this story. You need to understand today, if you are David and you have sinned against someone and you have broken someone's spirit, and you have hurt them, then redemption is possible for you. And you need to understand that your sin is not the final word in your story. Redemption is possible. And if you relate to Bathsheba in this story, and you feel like the hurt that's been done to you is the thing that defines your life, it's not true. And Jesus says, the final word in your life is not what has been done to you. It's what has been done for you through the hope of Jesus Christ. And redemption is possible. As the Old Testament comes to a close, we see an incredible thing happen. Well, first, David and Bathsheba do have other children. And one of those is a son who grows up 
to inherit his father's throne. And his name is Solomon. Synonymous even today with wisdom and blessing from God. The story starts to turn for both of them. And as the Old Testament comes to a close and the New Testament dawns, on the very first page of your New Testament, David and Bathsheba are listed. They're listed in a genealogy that talks about the background and the family lineage that runs through David and Bathsheba and ends up at the beginning of the New Testament in the birth of a baby who carries the most beautiful name we've ever heard. Jesus. Jesus. No matter what your story has been so far, your story is not over. Redemption gets the last word. Will you let it have the last word in your life? Will you let it have the last word in your life? God redeems the story of both David and Bathsheba. And as he redeems David's story and as he redeems Bathsheba's story through them, he actually redeems the entire world through the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Your story isn't over. There is still a last word to be written. And redemption gets it. Jesus, thank you for the truth of this story for David for the way that scripture is so honest with us about his failures help us to be honest about it too help us to be honest in the same way about our own failures and our own desperate desperate need for you God thank you for the way that it shows us the story of Bathsheba For the way that you help us to see that even though she is hurt, even though she is the victim of great hurt, that isn't the thing that ends up defining her life. You define it. And you do it through redemption. Do that for us. Help us to trust in Jesus so that redemption always gets the last word. Amen.